will open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 6. This is the 24th message so far. <laughs> I'm going to pull the plug on this uh, soon. I'm not exactly sure when. And we're going to do some Christmas emphases and then probably start something new at the first of the year. So uh, not sure where we're going to go yet, but we're nearing the end of our study in Genesis. So we come to now the third section within these 50 chapters. As a reminder, there are... The book of Genesis is divided up into ten individual sections or books. This is the beginning of the third book. The first book or section covered the generations of the heavens and the earth. It began at the creation of the universe and it took us through the expulsion of Adam and Eve in the garden. It also told us about the birth of Cain and Abel. The second book covered the generations of Adam and took us through the genealogies of Cain and Seth. Cain having killed his brother Abel, Adam and Eve had a third son, Seth. And so the second section or book covers the genealogies of these two men. The birth of civilization, its downward spiral into being completely depraved. And in this era, only Noah is found to walk with God. So the second book ends with God's proclamation that He is going to blot out man because every intent of the thought of his heart is only evil continually. And that ought to shake us to our core. The reality is, is that man has thoroughly corrupted God's perfect world. It has not gone unnoticed. God is not going to sit idly by and do nothing. He's going to deal with this. And so this third section, this third book, covers the generations of Noah and will take us through the end of chapter 9. It will include the building of the ark. It will include the universal flood or the worldwide flood, the life life after the flood in just a little snippet in Noah's family. And then it will lead us into the next book or the next section. So we're going to begin today in looking at this third book at Noah's family. So the focus of this third section is Noah, his family, and the worldwide flood that is going to come. But this book prepares the reader for the post-flood world. And it's very important that we understand Moses' purpose in the detail that he's going to provide here. If you remember in... Book 1 and Book 2, those first two sections, Moses flew through 15, 1600 years of history with just a very broad overview, and he is going to focus here on the life of Noah for just a brief period of time, some 120 years or so, and it's going to prepare the reader for life after the flood. So specifically, Moses' purpose is to show the root of the perpetuation of the blessing that is going to come to Abraham, the patriarch, that is going to be passed down through Isaac and Jacob and the rest of Israel's experience. And this becomes the main focus in all of Genesis. So we're going to see, well you would see if we get that far, which I don't think we will, Genesis 12, where Abraham is going to enter into into a covenant with God. He's going to promise to bless him and all of his offspring. They will be as numerous as the sand on the beach. 
And God is going to make a promise to Abraham that is going to be passed down through the generations. That covenantal blessing is rooted right here in this third section as God deals with the world, its sin, the flood, and then Noah's family. So after the flood narrative is completed, we'll see the incident of Noah's drunkenness. And that's going to be a very brief snippet into Noah's life after the flood. This event invokes a blessing and a curse. And this will link the flood survivors, Noah's family, and the vast table of nations that are found in Genesis 10 and 11. So when you read through Genesis 10 and 11, there are the descendants of Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and all of the children that were born to them, and these individuals become what is called the table of nations, some 70 nations that will exist post-flood, and what Moses is really doing is he is showing how Israel's ancestry was birthed into this ethnographic world where Abraham hears the call from God, obeys God, and becomes the father of this this vast nation of Israelites. So Noah's blessing on the line of Shem and Japheth and his curse on the line of Ham convey the moral setting for interpreting the post-flood world into which Israel's fathers were born and then Israel is going to find itself thrust into after its 430 years of slavery into the nation of Egypt. So all of this is going to be foreshadowed here in this third section. So when it's time to enter into the promised land, Israel will overcome her enemies as established within the table of nations that exist either under the blessing or the curse of Noah. So let me restate that a little bit. So what we're going to see here is the blessing and the curse that is going to come upon Noah's children These three children are going to become the father of a vast number of nations. Those nations are either going to be enemies of Israel or they're going to be allies to Israel based upon the curse that is handed down in in this section of Genesis. And when Israel enters into the promised land, they will be thrust into a world where they are enemies or they are allies based upon the curse that is handed down here in this third book of Genesis. This third book is also important because Noah is presented as the new Adam. We've heard me talk about this before. The book of Genesis through creation and through Adam and through the seed of the serpent begins communicating motifs that are going to find life throughout all of the Old Testament will be applied in the New Testament. And here we have the motif of of Noah becoming the new Adam. Not only in this book will we see much of the language of creation that was made that we were made of made aware of in chapter one. But Noah is the sole survivor and the successor to Adam. Both walk with God. Both are recipients of the promissory blessing. Both are caretakers of the lower creatures. Both father three sons. Both are workers of the soil. Both sin through the fruit of a tree. And both father a wicked son who is under a curse. So the life of Adam is, in a sense, paralleled in the life of Noah 
And that motif is carried throughout the Old Testament history. And then when you get to the New Testament, Jesus is the new Adam, the perfect Adam, who is the perfection of the other examples of Adam. There's a motif for Moses. There's a motif for David. There's a motif for other individuals throughout the Old Testament. But here we see Noah presented as the new Adam. It also helps us to remember as we get into this section of Genesis that if Moses is in fact writing this during the wilderness wanderings, as many commentators have concluded, that he is preparing the Israelites for the world in which they now find themselves, no longer slaves to Egypt, as well as the rationale for the promised land that they are going to inherit, and why these nations are their enemies, and why these nations are considered their allies. All of this finds its root here in this third third section of the book of Genesis. Probably didn't know that, did you? I didn't either. Don't think about these things when you just read through a book of the Bible, but this is very, very important. And it will begin to speak to us some things that hopefully we will understand and be able to connect better as we put together what we know about the Old Testament and trace it back to the beginnings as communicated to us here in the book of Genesis. So we're going to read together this morning verses 9 through 12. And that will prepare us for this uh, third section within the book of Genesis. Verse 9 begins, These are the records of the generations of Noah, the Toledot. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. So the first thing we'll see here is the setting. This is how the third section of Genesis prepares us for what is going to take place in the very, very near future. These first four verses serve as an introduction to who the main characters are, and a reminder as to why God was going to save Noah. This is more about God saving Noah than it is about the flood that's going to come, although it's difficult for us to separate those things. So these verses also contrast Noah with the world in which he lives. And so, number one, we look at Noah's life as portrayed to us. All we know at this point is what little bit has been said about him. We know that he is a descendant from the godly line of Seth. We know from previous section that he gave birth to three sons. We're going to learn more about this here. So the first thing that we see in this introduction to these main characters is that Noah is righteous. Verse 9, these are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Now, while this description of Noah is clearly a contrast to the complete depravity of man depicted in the earlier section, it goes way beyond simply contrasting evil with something that is not quite as evil. So if we didn't get this kind of description of Noah and the kind of life he lived, we might think, well, the world was really, really, really bad, and Noah wasn't really that bad, but that's not at all the picture that we're getting painted for us here. Moses wasn't a righteous man as compared to the rest of humanity. Noah was, by God's consideration, a righteous man. 
There's three phrases that are used to describe Noah. A righteous man, blameless, and that he walked with God. While each word or phrase has its own nuance, together they tell the same story about Noah's life. This is the first time that the word righteous is used in the Bible, and it isn't describing God, it is describing the person Noah. And when we couple this here with what we're going to see in Genesis 7-1, which says, And the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. Righteous means approved conduct. In contrast to the corrupt, degenerate conduct of the world in which Noah lived, his conduct was found to be approved by God. Now, wouldn't we like something of that nature to be said about us? Wouldn't we want or shouldn't we desire that when God looks at our lives in the midst of this sin-sick, sin-cursed world in which we live, wouldn't we like God to say, He is righteous? You know, God sees absolutely everything that we do. God hears every word that we say. God knows every thought we think before we even think them. (laughs) What does God say as He examines the conduct of our lives? God, what do you say when you look at me? I think that's something that we ought to give consideration to every day. As we end our day and we lay there in the darkness of the night with our eyes closed and we recap the day's events, do we even consider, God, what did you think about my interaction with that person? What do you think about how I carried myself in this issue? God, are you pleased? Do you approve of my conduct today? I'll tell you this, if we don't ask that question, the chance that we are growing in approved conduct is pretty slim if we aren't really wrestling with what God sees, with what He knows, and how that compares with what we know He desires and makes capable for us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, in the midst of Sin City... God looks at Noah and says he is righteous. The approved conduct has its root in a single central action. Approved conduct is rooted in faith. Now faith is not just a Christian virtue. Faith is really the root of so much of our Christian life. Faith is the root of our salvation. Apart from faith, we can't be saved. Faith is the root of our conduct because what we believe, what we really, really believe, is going to influence and affect what we do. If we go back to the garden, where Adam and Eve lived in a perfect environment, in a perfect relationship with God, the tempter came in and said, Did God say... 
God will not do. God's trying to hold you back. Faith is rooted in our unwavering belief in God's Word, never having any doubt about the fact that God will do what He says He will do, and never having any second thought about God's intentions or God's motives for what He has said as it relates to how we are to live our lives. What we think, what we believe is going to affect what we do. And so Moses' righteous conduct, that approved conduct by God, is rooted in his faith. Who he believes God to be, confidence in what God has said, and the belief that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. This is expressed to us in Hebrews chapter 11 when the writer of Hebrews gives an overview of why Noah was called righteous by God. It says in Hebrews eleven seven, By faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen, it had never ever rained, in reverence prepared the, an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world, he became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Apart from faith, there cannot be any righteousness. Because apart from faith in who God is and what God has said, we can never, ever, ever live our lives in such a way that God would say, I approve. Can't be done. Noah believed in God. He had faith in God. He trusted in His Word. He didn't doubt His actions. He trusted in God's intentions. And this is verified by the fact that when God says, hey, it's going to rain, and it's going to be a lot of rain, and I'm going to flood the world, you need to build a boat. I don't know that anybody had ever built a boat before. And if they had, they certainly had never seen any boat to this scale. And Moses never said like Moses did, "Uh, God, I don't understand what you're going to do. And boy, that sounds like a lot of wood. And how long is it going to take me to do that? And how am I going to get it all together? None of that. Noah simply said, I believe I will do. The New Testament will go on to say about faith and how it is rooted in righteousness in Romans 1.17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. If you erase faith from your world, if you erase it from your life, how does that affect your spiritual way of being and doing and thinking and feeling and living. Well, apart from faith, you can't be saved, right? Well, okay, so you have faith in the person and the work of Christ, and you're saved, but erase faith from everything else. Do you trust God? Will you follow God? Will you obey God? Will you stand against the corruption in the world? Will you? Are you willing to be alone in the truth? Well, if you have faith in God, you will. But when you waver, you're tossed to and fro. Did God really say, will God really do, what does this really mean for me? If you erase faith from our lives, we're left with very, very little, and most certainly we can never have the approved conduct that we found, we find in the life of Noah. So we have no detailed record of what God's revelation was to these early biblical characters. No recording other than you shall not eat. But whatever that revelation was, Noah believed it and it was demonstrated by the life he chose to live in God, in in faith that he had in God. And so he did this alone and the rest of the world was in a downward spiral of wickedness 
and Noah stood alone. Letter B, not, not only is Noah righteous, but Noah is blameless. Blameless means to be complete, to be sound. It indicates moral uprightness and integrity in a person's behavior. I think, I think Henry Ford was the individual who coined this. I may be wrong. Integrity, integrity is seen by what you do when no one else is looking. That's a pretty good definition. It may have been Henry Ford. I don't remember. Moral uprightness and integrity in a person's behavior when no one else is looking, when no one else is around, when nobody else knows but you and God, that's blameless. Noah was not guilty of the sinful actions that were found in the rest of the world. He stood alone. Again, he trusted in the Word of God, in the heart of God, and he desired to be found faithful to God. And this was demonstrated by the choices he made, culminating in his obedience to build this massive boat that was going to be the salvation for he and his family. So to be blameless here is not a declaration that he was sinless, It's not what blameless means. It doesn't mean to be without sin. No one is without sin except for God alone. But the heart of Noah was turned towards God in such a way that he constantly sought to honor God and to please God and to do the right thing by God's reckoning. He wanted nothing of what his world had to offer and he shared in nothing of the world's lifestyle. Is that a problem in our world today? Is it a problem in the church today? You know, it's a real tragedy that the biggest goal that young adults have is to be famous and to make a lot of money. What do you want to do after that? Well, I don't know. I haven't really thought about that. Well, how are you going to be famous? Well, uh, I'll get into the music industry. I'll go to Hollywood and be a star, be a celebrity, make a lot of money. Everybody will know who I am. Everybody will like me. I'll have everything that the world has to offer. And when you talk to these people that have accomplished this in their life, many, many of them will say, you know, I wish I could go back and live a life of anonymity. A simple life, a quiet life. There are droves of celebrities that are leaving the limelight of Hollywood, trying to carve out their own little world in the backwoods of Tennessee and Kentucky and other places where it isn't the limelight of California. It is a lie from the pit of hell to think that if you get a lot of money and if everybody knows you, you're going to be happy. It's just not true. But this seems to be where much of our world lives today. And you and I as adults believe that if we just have more, we just need more. If we have more, we'll be happier. We'll be more fulfilled. And it's just not true. It's a carrot that is dangled in front of us that keeps us running this race that chooses to ignore the sufficiency of God's presence and God's provision for our lives in our relationship with Him. I mentioned this to Deb this morning when she came, and I was thinking about this this morning as I was finishing up and and just by myself, and God brought back to me Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Period. 
Period. And much of the Christian world today says, yeah, but. Yeah, but. But what about? I just need a little more. Well, Noah was righteous. Noah was blameless. And Noah walked with God. Like Enoch from the godly line of Seth, Noah also walked with God. Noah is of the same righteous lineage as Enoch, both by physical descent and by moral conduct. Enoch was unusual in the sense that in this godly line of Seth, as he was walking with God, God just took him. He just took him. He didn't die. God just took him to be in heaven. Heaven wasn't very crowded back then. There weren't a lot of people who were dying. And yet, God takes Enoch home. He escaped the curse of death because of his faith and his moral conduct. And here Noah was going to escape death from the flood for the exact same reasons. Because of his faith and because of his moral conduct. Only Enoch and Noah are described to have walked with God. The way it's phrased in the Hebrew language, it says that about nobody else. Enoch and Noah walked with God. In fact, in the Hebrew, it says, with God walked Noah, emphasizing the supreme commitment that Noah had in his life to honor God first above anything and everything else. With God walked Noah. Many have walked before the Lord, but this description of walking with God is reserved for only Enoch and Noah. The last thing that we see in this introduction is letter D, Noah has three sons. Verse 10, Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. A repeat of what we saw back in the the genealogy of Seth, back in chapter 5. And again, this is simply an introduction to the other key players in the post-flood world. All of life after the flood is going to come from these three individuals listed here. We'll learn more about them in chapter 9 and then chapter 10 with the table of nations. Uh, Excuse me, we'll learn more about them in chapter 9 and potentially in chapters 10 and 11 if we go through the table of nations. And we'll see the... the ancestry that comes from them in the world in which Israel is going to find itself. And so we've looked very, very briefly at Noah's life, and now we're going to look at number two, Noah's world. So we're told something about the world in the previous section. It says in Genesis 6-5, as I reference loosely, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I really don't believe that this is a reality reserved for this era. I believe it speaks very, very accurately of a vast majority of our world today. That every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. 
So here in these final two verses, the world is described, again, a little differently, but again, emphasizing the same reality. Verses 11 and 12. Now, the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Did you get it? The earth is corrupt. It's emphasized, it's stated repeatedly three times in these two verses to describe the condition of the earth. The word corrupt means to spoil, to disfigure. And as God looks upon this majestic world that He made that exemplifies His majesty and His power and His glory, He looks at it and says, man has spoiled it. Man has disfigured it and has made it to look like something that is not what I intended. It is not what I desired. I think about a a master sculptor, a potter who has this work of clay and he's just spent hours and hours perfecting it and it's not yet ready to be fired and he turns his back and his little kid comes in and he goes squish, squish, mush, mush, deform, deform and the sculptor turns around and goes, that's not what I made. This looks nothing like what I had in my mind. This is nothing like what I desired. And that is a rude way of saying this is what man has done to the perfect world God has made. Begun in the garden through this seemingly insignificant sin of Adam and Eve. Carried through the first family in the murder of a brother. To this point now, some 1,600 years later, the world that God has made looks nothing like what He intended or what He desired. It means to take something good and do with it was not intended or what is not proper. Think about that. Doing with something which is not proper. Well, the ability to do that which is improper is the drive to corrupt. It is the direct result that comes from the knowledge of good and evil. Think about that. You think about something that is created in this world. Man invents something or creates something. And say, wow, you could do a lot of good with that. Well, right immediately in the shadows is a group of people saying, (laughs) I can do a lot of bad with that. I can wreak a lot of havoc. I can inflict a lot of pain. I can destroy my enemies. So this drive to corrupt flows out of the knowledge of good and evil that man has inherited as a result of the sin in Adam and evil. Without the knowledge of good and evil, we would never even think about taking something good and using it for a sinful purpose. Would never even enter our mind. Wouldn't occur to us. That's why your little three-year-old can burst out of the house naked and not think anything about it. And I'm just ready to play, ready to go. I don't think about it. But the knowledge of good and evil changes everything. And so all of the earth, all of mankind has corrupted God's creation 
spoiled it and disfigured it by doing that which was not intended, that which was not good, and that which is contrary to the purposes of God. His purposes, his desires, all forsaken by mankind to such an extent that God will stake, take extreme corrective action to uncorrupt what he has made. One commentator calls this decreation. It's exactly what it is. It's less about punishing man for what he has done than it is to uncorrupt what man has done. So this is a little snapshot of the world in which Noah lives. It is corrupt, and then letter B, it is violent. This really needs no definition. We're very well acquainted with violence in our world, but I want to read to you the definition of one commentator. He says, It's the cold-blooded and unscrupulous infringement of the personal right of others motivated by greed and hate, often making use of physical violence and brutality. I don't like you, therefore I am going to hurt you. I want what you have, therefore I am going to injure you to take from you for myself. You can virtually put almost all sin... Underneath that kind of definition, the cold-blooded and unscrupulous infringement of the personal right of others motivated by greed and hate, often making use of physical violence and brutality. Where God has blessed the human family with the power of procreation to fill the earth, mankind has filled the earth by procreating violence. God says, be fruitful and multiply. And man looks at his sinful desires that drive and has filled the earth with violence. Greed and hate are the root of pretty much all violence in our world. And there's no shortage of that in our world today. Here's what I learned to be incredibly interesting. And I don't know if it's coincidental or not. The Hebrew word for violence is Hamas. Have you heard that word before? Do you know that word? Hamas. The Hebrew word for violence, the word used here, is the word Hamas. Hamas is the militant Palestinian group that has recently attacked Israel unprovoked. It takes its name from the acronym for Harakat al-Muqwani al-Islamiyah, which means Islamic Resistant movement. Their acronym is the same Hebrew word for violence. It could be coincidental, it could be intentional. But the word in the Hebrew for violence is Hamas. And there is no shortage of Hamas in our world, and it's being lived out in the lives of Israelis over in the Middle East, and probably throughout any Israeli presence in our world, wherever there is a Jew, Hamas is surely going to follow. And it is a picture of the kind of corruption and disregard for God's purposes that we're going to find in our world. The world of Noah's day is described as corrupt and violent. Man has spoiled what God has created and has no interest in even considering 
what God desires or purposes. Zero. God is going to decreate His world. He's going to undo the corruption and start over with the righteous Noah and his family. And incredibly sad that this will not turn out any differently. It seems that every intent of the thoughts of man's heart is only evil continually. Praise God that He loves us in spite of this reality. Because before you were a Christian, you may have thought you were neutral towards God, but you weren't. We were all enemies of God. Whether we stood there with an active fist, shaking it in God's face, or we were just ignorant of God and unconcerned about God, we were His enemies. And through the grace of the cross, we have now been made to be the sons and daughters of the Most High God. In spite of our compulsion for sin, God has made a permanent, unbreakable covenant with us through our faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, His Son, and our Savior. Not because of who you are. Not because of the potential that lies within your life. But simply because God said on His throne, in absolute sovereignty, I love you. I will adopt you. I will make a permanent covenant with you. Even though you are my enemy, that is how I have chosen to deal with you. Isn't that amazing?